darkness opens the eye. Almost 30 years ago as an undergraduate, I wrote this in one of my notebooks. It was an exaggeration even then. It is not only darkness that has this effect. At the time, I had recently become intrigued by the way the pupils of the eye contract or expand in the presence or absence of light, after observing that certain hallucinogens have the same effect. The parallel seemed metaphorically apt. In the absence of light, or under the influence of hallucinogens, it becomes more difficult to navigate the physical environment. But the mind lifts from the mire of everyday thinking to inhabit new perspectives. What is the effect of darkness upon the mind? Having wired the whole world with artificial light, it is rare that we now experience anything more than a passing or diluted darkness. I wonder how much more easily we might sympathize with the vivid imaginations of our ancestors if we could experience the dark as they did, with only fire to allay it, or the distant cold sheen of the stars. Firelight and starlight are better for storytelling. Their soft glimmer enchants the eye, so different from the static glow of electric light. We now hardly ever have the chance to experience even the natural night of former centuries. What of the true dark, in which our sense of sight is not only strained, but useless? A decade ago in San Francisco, there was a restaurant called Opaque that offered the opportunity to eat a meal in total darkness. It was a gimmick, perhaps, but an intriguing one, so my partner and I decided to give it a try. We arrived in a sort of antechamber and were led down some steps behind a thick curtain. The staff were all blind, able to skillfully navigate the space. So now the diners were the ones who were disabled in their world. What is it like for a sighted person to remember something that they could not see? I have vividly tangible impressions of the experience, more so than of most meals, because my other senses were forced to work harder. I distinctly recall how I was situated spatially in the restaurant, even the direction that I was facing, back toward those stairs that I could no longer see. There was a dim susurration to the right and left, the sounds of other diners, that gave me the vague dimensions of the room. The food was basic, but better than I had expected. I was served a creditable steak, a filet cooked every bit as rare as I had requested, and I'm pretty sure I was eating with my fingers by the end. We had a good red wine, though it is impossible to remember the vintage since I never saw the bottle. But the strangest part is that, although I could see none of these things, the room was genuinely, completely dark, to the point where the eyes only felt oppressed as they tried to adjust. My memory limbs everything with a gray haze where it imagines the borders of things to have been, as though imposing the ghost of sight on purely tactile sensations. Is this the manner in which mind gives birth to monsters when our experience of the dark is enlivened by fear? Do our eyes take the shapes of the things we cannot see and impose alarming new outlines? In the dark, I once encountered what could have been a monster, or would have been, had I been blessed with a livelier imagination. It was a winter's night in Maine, only a year or two ago, 
and because my mother raised me to endure moral consternation at the thought of throwing away anything that can be recycled or composted, I was bringing food scraps into the woods, my usual habit. It was dark that night, and even darker under the trees, so my eyes were of little use, and I relied on muscle memory to follow the path. Not long after entering the tree cover, I noticed a sound suggestive of a large animal rustling through the undergrowth, maybe ten feet away on my right. I stopped to listen, wondering if I had imagined this. There was only silence under the trees. I began walking again. So did my shadow. I stopped, and once again silence resumed. I strained my eyes to see through the dark, but it could make out nothing. I moved. It moved. I stopped. It stopped. Was it only my imagination? Or was something out there pacing me, stalking me, some large unseen being, timing its steps perfectly to mine with the caution and cleverness of a skilled hunter? I should have been afraid, perhaps, and because I am not stupid, I began mentally preparing for a fight should it come to that. I carried the food scraps in a large stainless steel bowl. This could provide a serviceable shield. But what I truly felt in that moment was nothing akin to fear. It was a rare delight, difficult to describe. Now, if there was indeed something there, something large, stalking me in those woods, probably it was a coyote. Coyotes on the East Coast are much bigger, their bloodline almost 30% wolf. Nothing to scoff at. But I'm pretty sure I could take on one coyote, me and my stainless steel bowl. If I had seen a coyote, this still would have been an exciting encounter, but not nearly so delightful. The delight, still so memorable, came entirely from not being able to see, not knowing even if anything was really there, stalking me through the snow in the dark woods. For those afflicted with a bland stolidity of mind that denies them any encounter with the supernatural, reality can still be doubted a little in the dark. There is one more monster that I sometimes see in the dark, and this one is my favorite because I know it is not real. I've only seen it a handful of times in different places, but always in the same manner. I think the first time was in the autumn of 2001, right after I moved to Berkeley for graduate school. My partner was away, or had not yet arrived, and all our belongings were still in transit, so I was sleeping alone on a futon in an empty loft. The loft was one floor of an old mill building, built against the steep hillside, that we later learned had been illegally subdivided, and, probably to avoid public scrutiny, was personally and ineptly maintained by a landlord appropriately named Doolittle. By the end of five years, I was forced to hang plastic tarps from the ceiling under the 13 places where the roof now leaked when it rained, because it seemed like every time Mr. Doolittle got on the roof to repair a leak, he opened up a few new ones. That house was haunted by strange horrors. The unseen animal always screaming in the walls, the mysterious woman always sobbing upstairs, and one night, something so much worse that I dare not describe it today. It's a story for quite another topic. 
So all told, it should not have been surprising that it was here, that first week in the dark, that I first saw my phantom spider. There's not much to the story, I suppose. I was lying on my back on the futon, not quite asleep, when suddenly I became aware of a large spider that had apparently descended from the ceiling and was now dangling directly over my face, about three or four feet up. Now, I was not immensely perturbed by this. Spiders have never bothered me. All my life I've had a bottomless loathing for flies, so it always made sense to cultivate an alliance with spiders. I might have been concerned if it looked like the spider was still descending toward my face, but it did not appear to be coming any closer. So I lay still, calm and curious, studying it as carefully as I could through the obscuring darkness. Do I really see this? Yes, I really do see this. Am I awake? Yes, I'm quite sure that I'm awake. Are my eyes open? Yes, my eyes are wide open. And that's really a spider. Yes, it is unmistakably a large spider dangling in the air directly over my face. But that seems a bit improbable, doesn't it? Yes, very improbable. The ceiling of this loft is so high, and the placement is just a little too perfect. So, do I really see this? I see it, yes, but how can I know if it is real? Exhausting this line of inquiry, eventually I got up and turned on the light. The results were predictable. No spider. So why had I seen one? Five years later, we finally left that loft for a new apartment, dislodged not by the screaming walls, the sobbing upstairs, the the thing that was worse, that I won't tell you today. All that was somehow endurable. I guess we're tolerant tenants. No, it was the leaking roof that was the last straw, because we had a lot of computers, and it was alarming the time that power strip caught fire. So we packed up our things and found a nice house deeper in the hills, where only the walls leaked when it rained, and left all those other horrors behind. All except the spider. The phantom spider hitched a ride and stayed with me. Good thing I'm fond of spiders. I've seen it a few times since, over the years, most recently here in San Diego. This was about five years ago, under the same circumstances. I am lying in bed, on the verge of sleep, and then suddenly roused into wakefulness by the sight of the spider dangling directly over my face. Once again, I gaze at it with open eyes, marveling at how clearly delineated its body is described against the dark, with a sensation all the more delightful because now I know it is not real, but I can vividly see it anyway. Even hallucinogens never gave me hallucinations, a huge disappointment for someone habitually inclined to take words of their literal meaning. So I treasure my only confirmed hallucination, the phantom spider that sometimes visits me in the dark. As you can tell by now, I have an uncommon love for the dark and deep affection for the monsters that dwell in that mapless terrain of possibility, uncertainty, and doubt. The dark is a liminal realm where the eye imposes its own visions, the mind its own meanings. Sanity may depend on drawing sharp distinctions between dream and day, 
But I think there is much to be learned by those who would risk venturing into that borderland where we can no longer easily distinguish between the dark without and the dark within. Darkness opens the eye and tests the frailty of the veil between inner and outer life. <laughs>